0: Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: Now, this is something that our generation of people need to get, and they need to get it badly. God does not change His standards for anybody. So you can think anything you want, but it's never gonna change what God has declared in His Word. What God says is wrong will always be wrong, and those who persist in wrongdoing will come under the judgment of God.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, in a message titled, Dead in Trespasses and Sins. now, here's Pastor Brian.
1: Of course, many religions teach a moral and ethical system that is similar to what we find in the Bible. But the rub, the the real conflict, occurs when you get down to things like this, when you get down to the issue of sin and everyone being a sinner and everyone being desperately in need of the grace of God and no one being able to save themselves through their morality or through their good works, that's where you find the conflict. But then Paul adds one more thing to the world and the devil, the flesh. And so he says here, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires. Again, this is who we are naturally. My, my mind, my body's under the control of my mind. My, it's under the control of my, my passions and my desires. And, and there comes a certain point where we just, whatever those passions dictate, the body goes in that direction. Whatever the mind can conceive of, the body follows along under the direction of the mind. And, and in many places in the New Testament, we have given to us a various descriptions actually of what the life of the flesh looks like. And it's ugly. It's very, very ugly. Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5 here. We have these, these pictures to us, uh, given to us of the life of the flesh. What is it like? Well, sexual immorality is at the top of the list. Sexual immorality. And when I say at the top of the list, not meaning it's the it's the, the worst of things. It just generally is, finds itself up there at the top. There, there's no one, it's, it's not, they're never laid out in the degree of the sin, like the worst at the top, and then you get down. As far as the biblical presentation goes, we're, we're talking about all of these things are really in the same category. They're all in that, that same thing of, of manifestations of the flesh, the flesh which is in opposition to God. So sexual immorality, the Greek word here is a very inclusive word, and it just, it sort of takes everything, and it brings it under this one word. The Greek word is pornea. And of course, you, the word sounds familiar. It's where we get the word pornographic from. And, but yet, when we think of pornographic, we, we have one thing in our minds, but the word's broader than that. And so it's more correctly translated sexual immorality because it refers to all sexual activity outside of what God has ordained. And what God has ordained is the sexual relationship is to be experienced between a, a husband and a wife, a heterosexual married couple. But outside of that, anywhere outside of that, you come into the realm of sexual immorality. So The flesh, sexual immorality, impurity. The word impurity here has a sexual connotation to it. And then in Galatians, the word that Paul uses in the Greek is translated into English by the word debauchery, debauchery. If you look in the Webster Dictionary for a definition on debauchery, it pretty much says sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They left out the rock and roll part, but they could have inserted it because that's the picture. The picture is illicit sex, alcohol, drugs, party lifestyle. That's, that's what debauchery is describing. And that's pretty much the, the way the culture has been, hasn't it, for a long, long time now, debauchery. But then he goes on in, in the manifestations of the flesh, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, wars, divisions, envy, drunkenness, theft, slander, greed, gossip, bitterness, rage, anger, malice, murder. All of these things are in the same category. What is he describing? He's describing humanity. He's describing people. And you see, we might say, well, look, I've, I've not been sexually immoral. I'm, I'm not one of those people given over to debauchery. I don't have any idols erected in my home. I'm not involved in any form of witchcraft. Okay, great. What about hatred? Do You ever hate anybody? What about jealousy? What about fits of rage? What about selfish ambition, envy, theft, slander, greed, gossip, bitterness? See, this is the flesh. And we have to admit, right? This is who we are. This is who all of us are. This is humanity. But it doesn't stop there because it also includes pride and it includes things like pride of intellect, pride of ancestry, pride of race, pride of religion, pride of morality. The interesting thing about this to me is that Paul makes sure to include himself in this list and his people, the Jews. You see, because as a Pharisee, he never would have done that. As a Pharisee, he would have seen himself and his people as separate from these pagan Gentiles who were given over to sin. He would have seen himself as not in that same group. But as somebody who has had an encounter with Christ and a life-transforming encounter, he knows that he was there as well. He wasn't an idolater, obviously, because that was radically against Judaism. He wasn't involved in witchcraft or sexual immorality. But He had a tremendous amount of pride in his ancestry. He had pride in his race. He had pride in his religion. He had pride in his morality. So when he's talking about the condition, he includes himself along with everybody else. This is the way people are. It's just the truth about us. And the truth sometimes painful. You know, it's amazing. You can you can see people that in so many areas externally they seem to have it together and and it's it's hard to see sometimes if you're at a distance, it's hard to see that there is any sin in their life. But when you get up close and personal, you start to see little things in people's hearts. And and all of us, obviously, all of us don't go out and murder people. But remember, Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart for a person, as far as God's concerned, you have murdered them. And who among us has not hated somebody at one time or another? We all have. And as a result of all of this, where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves in this position that Paul tells us here as being the children of wrath. The children of wrath. Now, there's probably nothing more upsetting to the secular mind than the idea that God is a God who will judge people, and that God is a God of wrath. And to some degree, we can understand it a little bit because people's idea of what it means for God to be a God of wrath quite often is not a biblically accurate idea. Some people, when they think of God's wrath, they think of it like man's wrath. They think that God is is an ill tempered being, that he might uh, fly off the handle at any moment. But when we're talking about God and his wrath, we're talking about the wrath of God, we're not talking about anything like that. God's wrath is neither spite, nor malice, nor animosity, nor revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable. See, what people usually think of, because they've they've got some idea of some out of control, ill-tempered, unpredictable kind of a person, they think of God as being like that, though that's not the case. God's wrath is entirely predictable It is never subject to mood, whim, or caprice because it is rooted in God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. Now, this is something that our generation of people need to get and they need to get it badly. God does not change his standards for anybody. God is, in this regard, there is absolutely zero flexibility. So you you can think anything you want, but it's never gonna change what God has declared in his word. What God says is wrong will always be wrong. It, will ne- it doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what we supposedly discovered about people that we didn't previously know. What God says is wrong is wrong, and those who persist in wrongdoing will come under the judgment of God. God's wrath is predictable. It is directed toward evil. And evil is what God says is evil, not what we determine to be evil. Now, this idea of God's wrath, as I said, it's it's very, very unacceptable, especially to the modern mind. But it's not only a reality that God does and will express wrath, but the reality is all of us by nature are children of wrath, which means that we are under the wrath of God. We are destined for his judgment by nature. In Romans chapter one, Paul actually says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God's wrath is being revealed and it will be revealed in the future. Against what? All ungodliness and all unrighteousness. What's ungodliness? Ungodliness is any failure to live according to who God is and what he's like in his holiness. What's unrighteousness? Any failure to live consistently with what God says is True about how we relate to one another as people. So his wrath is against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. You see, this is what we do. We suppress the truth. We know that things are wrong, but we we push back that, that sense of, of guilt over it, or that sense of conviction. And we try to convince ourselves that no, this is okay, this isn't wrong, this is all right. But God's wrath Is revealed against that. Now, again, we're all in the same predicament. Remember Paul's point here. Paul's point here isn't so much to talk about this as to use this as the backdrop for talking about God's grace, but he wants us to understand our true condition of where we were. I think of how God reminded the children of Israel many centuries after he had originally brought them out of Egypt. But he painted a picture through the prophet Ezekiel. And he said, when when I found you, you were like a, a miscarried child, an aborted child on the side of the road, wallowing in your own blood and ready to expire. And I took you and I cleansed you and I wrapped you up and cared for you and nurtured you and blessed you and brought you to this place. And then, of course, with the nation, they revolted against him and he was building his case there. But that's the same with us. That's where we are. And the marvel of it all is Paul having described our condition, he then adds these words, but God, but God. Now think of it. Put yourself in a place, if you can, of trying to express your love and concern and care for for somebody who is completely resisting that, revolting against it, rebelling against it, spitting in your face, cussing at you, get away from me, running from you, hiding from you, slandering you. That's us. That's humanity. That's what we're doing to God. So the world is doing to God. But what is God doing? God is pursuing. He doesn't stop pursuing. That's the amazing thing. But God, this is who we are, this dark, bleak, wretched picture, but God who is great in mercy Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were in that state. Even when we were in that state, he didn't leave us alone. We were saying, leave me alone. Quit bothering me, God. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't care about your commandments. Oh, how many people have been in that very place? But he wouldn't leave them alone. He wouldn't leave you alone. He was they're persisting. He sought us when we were fleeing, when we were hiding. He allowed us to see our true state. He broke through. He unsettled our souls. He showed us our true condition. You know, the problem is this is this is who we are. We've been looking at it, reading it. But the problem is we don't see it ourselves, do we? Isn't it funny how we can see things in other people that we cannot see in ourselves? We, we can look at certain people and just, oh, that is so bad. I can't believe they behave like that. I can't believe they talk to people like that. And, and then come to find out we do the same thing, but we don't see it. That's just the way it is. We, we have a blindness to our own condition. But God, in his patience, instead of judging us, instead of pouring his wrath upon us, what does he do? He works on us to to get us to see our true state. He unsettles our souls. We start to to feel that something isn't right. We start to get little glimpses of our, our desperate need for being rescued, for being delivered. He woos us with his love. Again, think about it on a human level. Somebody who who just continues to love you despite all of your efforts to do everything you can to to just stop loving me stop pursuing me stop trying to help me that's us but God he keeps going he keeps pressing in why why is he doing that because of his great love It's because of the great love that he has for us. And so he brings us to that place. He woos us. And then he extended his saving hand of grace to us. He forgave our trespasses and sins. And he made us his own dear children. That's the mind boggling thing. Rebels. You know, with rebels, think of it with rebels. And I'm not just talking about, like a rebel in the sense of maybe one of your teenage kids who's living in rebellion. But think of those who rebel against like a king, for example. And their their efforts are to overthrow the king. Insurgents, they want to overthrow existing governments, revolutionaries. They want to overthrow the status quo and they do everything they can they they do to to try to accomplish that in murder doesn't matter whatever we're going to do it and that that's that's the picture of us now you could understand if a king says okay the rebels we've we've talked some sense into them they're no longer going to revolt and we're going to forgive their former rebellion and we're going to allow them certain privileges of the kingdom and so forth and okay that's the end of that okay well that would be one thing and that would be pretty amazing in and of itself but let's just say the king says well the rebels you know i actually let's bring them into the family let's make them part of the family let's sit them down at the dinner table with us let's share the inheritance let's share the wealth let's give them all, let's give them the kingdom to enjoy with us well, that's something that you would never see, but that's what God's done. That's what God's done. We who were at one time enemies. Now, listen, in our present cultural situation, we have such a victim mentality in our culture that even people in churches, instead of seeing themselves as, as they really were, they see themselves more as victims of the devil and sin. No, listen, we were com- complicit with the devil. We were not simply victims. We were enemies and alienated from God by our wicked works. But what has he done? He's not only forgiven us, but he's made us his dear children. That is the astounding thing. He's not just simply said, okay, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to put you in prison. I'm going to you know, let you live on your land out there outside the city, but you ever mess up again, we'll wipe you out. He he hasn't done that. He said, come on and join the family. Become part of the family. Sit at my table with me. Share in my wealth and my glory. That's what Christ has done for us. He's taken us from being rebels and he's made us his dear children. And he's done it all through his love. He persevered. He kept the pressure on, that pressure born out of his love for us. The hound of heaven tracked us down. He wouldn't let us go. Oh, the love that would not let us go. That's what it is. This great love that would not let us go. As I was finishing the preparation last night, I was thinking of the words to the song that Chelsea sang. What wondrous love is this, is the title of the song. And it's, it's really true when you think about it. I'm going to close with the words to that song, at least some of them. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul? To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. That's what he did. He bore the curse for us. What wondrous love. But then it goes on. When I was sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, that was us, children of wrath, sinking down into the pit. Under his righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. And then the last stanza, And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing his love for me. And through eternity, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. And through eternity, I'll sing on. We can sing on because we've been made free. We're free from death. You who were dead... We who were dead in trespasses and sins, he has made alive together with Christ. So you see, Paul's whole objective here is to get us to see how amazing God's love is for us. That we would then give the only reasonable response of just living a life of absolute praise and thankfulness and dedication, all born out of love for the one who loved us first. God help us to get it and to respond to it.
0: For the month of October... Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. Our identity as a Christian is defined by who God says we are, and our identity in Christ connects us to God. But pornography attempts to unglue our identity from God and from others. It skews and distorts true manhood and true womanhood, enslaving millions. So in his book, The Death of Porn, Ray Ortland reminds us of the royal identity of men and women and the practical ways the bondage of pornography can be broken. If you want to be equipped to face the slavery of pornography in your life or the life of others, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443 That's 1-800-733-6443 Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God.